The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we join newly minted Private Eyes Bud Alexander and Lou Francis as they take on their first case. Professional fighter Tommy Nelson, accused of murdering his manager, is on the run and fiercely maintaining his innocence. After enlisting the help of Bud and Lou, Nelson uses Dr. John Griffin's invisibility serum with the hopes of clearing his name and bringing the real murderer to justice. The plan? Pass Lou off as a formidable challenger for Nelson's rival Rocky Hanlon in order to draw out the guilty party hoping to capitalize on a fixed fight. Can Nelson prove his innocence before the invisibility serum drives him insane? Or before Louis the Looper is beaten to a pulp? Grab your deerstalker hat and get that magnifying glass out of your mouth. It's not a lollipop. And join us for more invisible shenanigans as we discuss Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about 1951's Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is the man who slipped somebody 20 bucks so I could graduate. It's Mikey the Monster Manzi. How are you, Mike? Glad to be here. Even if you can't see me, I'm in the room. Well, after the incredible success of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which revitalized public interest in both the comedy duo and Universal's iconic monsters, a follow-up was all but guaranteed. Three years and four films later for Abbott and Costello, not to mention their TV and radio obligations, Bud and Lou were back for another monster movie. And with that fun Invisible Man gag at the end of the previous monster meetup, it was only logical he would be the next to star alongside the comedy duo. But rather than bring back Vincent Price for the role, Universal chose to rework the basic premise and even borrow some footage from The Invisible Man Returns and recast the titular character entirely. I'm not entirely sure why Vincent Price had not yet become the horror icon that we know him as today. That wouldn't happen for another decade or so. So I can't imagine he was too expensive. Whatever the case, Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe became boxer Tommy Nelson. And instead of being framed for his brother's murder, it was his manager's murder. And then two bumbling private detectives were thrown into the mix. In the end, the familiar narrative works mostly to showcase the comedic talents of Abbott and Costello. However, in my opinion, with many of these gags also being recycled, the film ultimately just underlines the reality that what was once a match made in heaven a few years prior was already starting to lose steam. Now, what say you, Mike? Did you find yourself laughing all that much watching this, or am I being too hard on it? I don't necessarily think you're being too hard on it. You know, I was laughing, though, at certain 
moments. I'm not sure if it was intentional or not, but much less than last time. I should say, though, this is my first screening, and this will be my first screening of most of these Abbott and Costello meetups going forward. We talked a bit in the last episode how much we watched these guys growing up. But um, again, like as far as them meeting the monsters, I was not all too familiar with those encounters. I didn't say it then, but I mostly remembered them going to Mars and visiting the Yukon and joining the army. This was a new one for me. And I got to say, right away, I was very disappointed that Vincent Price wasn't here because like you say, like, why wouldn't he be here? This is a great way to develop his persona, especially since this will be part of it down the line. Like it will come to embrace the horror side of his abilities and everything. But uh, we do get a nice picture of Claude Rains, which I thought was kind of funny. Yes. It feels very recycled. It feels stretched extremely thin. I kept thinking to myself, why is this an hour and 22 minutes? Why isn't it just an hour? Why even go the extra distance? There's not that much story here. And I think where I come down on it is that's why the last one was so great was it would have been a good movie even without these guys. But these guys elevated that film. And I think this is very much dependent on them doing their shtick, doing their thing, which not that it's bad. uh, It's just it gets kind of tired after a while. We'll get into it a little more. And um, I'm going to be kind. But I did kind of feel like this was maybe the bottom of the barrel. It's very near the bottom for me anyway. Part of the problem definitely stems from the fact that so much of it is recycled, not just the plot, but also a lot of the gags in there we've seen before and other things. So in a lot of ways, it feels like Abbott and Costello are phoning this performance in, which is a little bit disheartening. But I think if you're going to retool an old Invisible Man movie, this is sort of the wrong one to do it with because the narrative requires urgency, right? This guy is on a timeline, right? He's going to go insane if they don't find his killer soon. Once he's invisible and the movie kind of kicks off properly, the movie just sort of grinds to a halt so that Abbott and Costello can have time to do their bits. The entire time, I had to keep reminding myself, no, wait, we got to find a murderer. This guy is going to lose his mind. And so the movie just doesn't seem concerned about that as much as it does with these gags, right? So it seems like a weird choice overall. There are some things that are good about it. I mean, I do think Luke Costello just had a natural gift for quick dialogue. You know, those sorts of jokes work more for me in this than the visible gags. You know who came to mind this time watching him in the ring was like Chris Farley. And that never kind of struck me watching Chris Farley before, but like, yeah, definitely a study there. Yeah, all the physical humor in here is kind of where it loses me. I think the dialogue has its moments where I found myself laughing a bit when Lou is asked about the subconscious and he thinks it comes from the subway, you know, stuff like that. Stuff that would otherwise be a throwaway line the way he delivers it. I found myself laughing kind of in spite of it um, almost. So I think that this thing has a lot of problems and maybe I would feel differently about it if we hadn't been watching these movies the way we have been, you know, kind of one after another because the Invisible Man Returns is still relatively fresh in my mind. Yeah. And so if I had gone a couple years, had not watched The Invisible Man Returns, like sort of forgotten about it and then watched this, maybe I'd feel differently. But as it is, it's just too close to home for me to really engage with it. I definitely feel that as well. There is a certain amount of wasted premise also. Mm-hmm. Like they set up this whole detective thing so well that I was like, oh, great. Like they're going to be, the you know, whatever the mystery is, it's going to be fun because the Invisible Man's involved. And then it turns out to be like this boxing thing, which reminds me of like kind of Pulp Fiction. I'm like, what is going on? And then I just was imagining like a Rocky movie that had this same plot, which was about like a murder mystery that Rocky needed to solve. So like my mind just started wandering in different directions uh, because it just didn't feel like it was delivering on 
what it was advertising, which wasn't yeah. really much to go on in the first place, but I just had expectations after the last one. You know what I'm saying? Like, how, right. how couldn't you? They built it up so well. Just the other thing is, you know, like, it just feels like they wrote kind of like an outline and we keep going back to those same jokes over and over again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, for instance, like the psychiatrist. Yes. I mentioned like the phantom boxing stuff. There's some good stuff in here for sure. Like, it's it's worth watching if you want to watch them all and we'll point that stuff out. I was a bit perplexed, I must say. After the high of the last one, I wasn't expecting to slip quite this far down. Let's get into the movie. I wasn't able to find a whole lot of production stories, no real backstory into the making of Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. So a lot of it is my own supposition. But I was able to, you know, find quite a bit of information on this cast. I was happy to see a lot of new faces here. So Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man was only the fourth film produced by Howard Christie. He began his film career as an actor in 1935. He also did some second unit directing in the early 40s before his first producing credit in 1945 with Lady on a Train, starring Deanna Durbin, Ralph Bellamy, David Bruce, and George Caloris. He would go on to produce Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, as well as their encounters with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Keystone Cops, and The Mummy. But he mostly handled westerns in all of his 25 years of producing. We've got director Charles Lamont here as well. He directed with a script from the Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein writing team of Robert Lee's Frederick I. Ronaldo and John Grant, based on a story of Hugh Wedlock Jr. and Howard Snyder. Coming from an acting family, Charles Lamont was a fourth-generation actor, beginning on stage as a teenager before transitioning to films in 1919, where he also worked as a prop man and an assistant director. Over the course of his career, he became a wildly prolific director with over 200 directing credits, beginning with silent short-subject comedies for a company called Educational Pictures, where he worked with Shirley Temple and Buster Keaton. When Educational Pictures folded, he was hired by Columbia to work with the Three Stooges, but his time there was short-lived due to his intense hatred for the studio president, Harry Cohn. He freelanced for a while before joining Universal in 1942, where he developed a reputation for working well with the studio's younger performers, particularly teen musical star Gloria Jean, and for working with limited budgets. By 1950, he was one of Universal's most efficient directors, and with their need for a good comedy director who could pretty much do the job indefinitely, he became the go-to guy for Abbott and Costello, and he remained with them until they were cut loose by the studio in 1955. All right. With a budget of $627,000, production on Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man began on October 3rd and lasted until November 6th, 1950. So just about a month or so. Okay. As far as the cast, we've got Bud Abbott as Bud Alexander and Lou Costello as Lou Francis. Uh, can I just say, I always love that when a actors use their real name. It's just like, we're not even trying this time. <laughs> I don't know about you. It sort of throws me off that they are playing Bud and Lou. It's almost as if they're not playing characters. They're just being themselves. Yes. Yeah. I get that as well. It kind of breaks the illusion to a degree. We've got Arthur Franz as Tommy Nelson slash the Invisible Man. He's a Jersey boy born in Perth Amboy. All right. Arthur Franz served in World War II as the navigator of a B-24 Liberator for the Army Air Force. Awesome. Yeah, he was shot down over Romania and incarcerated as a POW. What? He eventually escaped from that camp, and his acting career began on stage 
in the 1940s before his screen debut in the war film Jungle Patrol in 1948, which is wild. Yeah. As he became a screen actor, he did some B-level stuff, including 1953's Invaders from Mars, 1957's The Unholy Wife, and 1958's Monster on the Campus. But he's probably better known for his work in a slew of noir, westerns, and of course, war films, where he co-starred with John Wayne in 1949's Sands of Iwo Jima and Ronald Reagan in 1957's Hellcats of the Navy. Wow, that's wild. And his life sounds a little like Rescue Dawn. Yes. Little Dieter has to escape from the POW camps. That's Vietnam, but I'm, I'm saying like, that's wild. It reminds me a little bit of like Daniel Bruhl's character in Inglorious Bastards. You know, he's the war hero who comes home and then they just start putting him in movies. Yeah, good call too. And nice to see like he was into the sci-fi horror stuff a lot too. I like his filmography. Look, I don't think I've seen him in anything but this, but considering that he was like a military guy and then made a quick transition into acting, he's actually really good as Tommy Nelson, I thought. Like I never would have suspected that he wasn't really an actor. He looked very comfortable in front of the camera, it seems. It's funny you say something like that because I could picture him in the room as the Invisible Man. You know what I'm saying by that? Like, I, I could feel like this actor's presence, whereas, like, I think maybe the last time, maybe like Claude Rains and Vincent Price were the only two other actors where it's like when they're invisible, I could sort of, you know, picture what they look like. And since I didn't really know this guy from anything recognizable, like, I thought that was like, oh, that means he had like a strong presence in the film. We think about these actors who play the Invisible Man and the best ones have a really great speaking voice, right? Like Claude Rains is probably the gold standard there. But I thought he did a great job pretty much giving a voice performance here. And the effects work, yeah, he had to really sell that character with only his voice because the effects were so good as well. Yeah. I was very impressed. We've got Nancy Guild as Helen Gray, Tommy's girlfriend. She was born in L.A. in 1925. And after being discovered in a Life magazine spread on college fashion, Nancy Guild was screen tested by five Hollywood studios before landing a deal with 20th Century Fox. Her first film was Joseph L. Mankiewicz's 1946 film Somewhere in the Night. Talk about crazy first film, like getting to work with Joe Mank, right? Just that's nuts. The publicity team declared, quote, Guild rhymes with wild, end quote. Okay. That's the only reason I knew how to pronounce her name correctly, to be honest. That's probably why it was in like the press releases all over the place. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Despite this fanfare, she had a very short acting career, only eight films all told. After 1948, she left Fox and freelanced until 1953 when she appeared in the Francis the Talking Mule film, Francis Covers the Big Town. Wow. It wasn't her last film appearance, but like that's kind of when her career was pretty much over. But she did do one more film. In 1971, she was in Otto Preminger's film, Such Good Friends. Nice. She's pretty good here. I wish her character had way more to do or like just about anything to do. There's a better role that the other female actor gets to play. They could have used the Helen Gray character like way differently, I felt. But I was just thinking, you know, make her the scientist. Yeah. As you were alluding to, Adele Jurgens plays Boots Marsden. She was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1917. She was named Miss World's Fairest at the 1939 New York World's Fair. After that, she worked as a model, a chorus girl, and briefly a rockette at Rockefeller Center. At one time, she was the number one showgirl in New York City. She did some Broadway work too, of course. And then in 1944, she dyed her brown hair blonde and signed a contract with Columbia. And for much of her career, she played the blonde floozy or the the burlesque dancer playing alongside Rita Hayworth in 1947's Down to Earth, William Holden in 1948's The Dark Past, and she was even Marilyn Monroe's mother in 1948's Ladies of the Chorus. In 1956, she retired.
retired from acting with 72 total acting credits. Not too shabby. So of the supporting cast, there are two that really stood out to me. People I recognized from something outside of Abbott Costello, of course. First one being Sheldon Leonard as Morgan. Okay. He's most recognizable to me as Nick the bartender from It's a Wonderful Life. But he was not just an actor. I also know that he had a huge impact behind the camera as well. Beginning with his debut in Another Thin Man in 1939, Leonard was a hardcore New Yorker known for playing tough guys and gangsters for most of his acting career, also appearing in To Have and Have Not and Guys and Dolls, among others. But in the 1950s and 60s, he established himself as a very successful producer, bringing The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Gomer Pyle, USA, MC and I Spy to television. Wow. In fact, it was Sheldon Leonard who decided that Carl Reiner was too overbearing as a lead, and that led to Reiner being replaced in his own show with Dick Van Dyke, resulting in the Dick Van Dyke show. Awesome. He's also credited with being the first to conceive of the idea of a backdoor pilot, where a guest star is introduced on an existing series with the intention of using that character as the basis for a new show. Cool. Interesting. I never knew this. I always know him as Nick the bartender, but I love that he was incredibly important in the TV world, right, in the 50s and 60s. So definitely cool to see him here pretty much playing that tough guy New Yorker kind of role. Yep. One of the things about this movie is that there's a mystery, but they kind of pretty much tell you who the guy is yeah halfway through right like it's sheldon leonard's character morgan like there's no hiding the fact that morgan is the guy to be worried about so if this movie had been a legitimate mystery maybe i could have had more fun with it but there's no surprises good point yeah all they have to do is they're trying to recreate a crime and catch the guy doing it again they know exactly what happened it's just like trying to clear this guy who's been framed All the best mysteries are just about clearing the innocent man. (laughs) The other actor who should be recognizable to anybody watching this movie is William Frawley, who plays Detective Roberts. Bill Frawley, like I said, needs no introduction on this podcast. Anybody listening to this show knows he was Lucy Ricardo's landlord, Fred Mertz, on I Love Lucy. But I did a little bit of digging and found some really cool stuff about him. He was born in Burlington, Iowa in 1887. He loved performing, but he had a deeply religious mother who discouraged that sort of behavior. He worked a number of odd jobs as an adult, first as a stenographer in Omaha, Nebraska, and then a court reporter in Chicago before creating a vaudeville act with his brother, Paul. That only lasted six months because his mother demanded Paul return to Iowa. After writing a script entitled Fun in a Vaudeville Agency and successfully selling it for $500, he decided to move to Denver, where he was hired as a singer in a cafe and teamed up with a pianist named Franz Rath. Their act was called A Man, a Piano, and a Nut. Frawley then took to the stage performing in Broadway theater, starting with musical comedy in 1925, and then turned to dramatic roles in 1932. He had appeared in a few silent shorts in 1916, but he didn't transition fully into a screen actor until 1933 when he signed a seven-year deal with Paramount where he found a ton of work as a character actor, appearing in a variety of movies from comedies to dramas, musicals, and westerns. You may remember him from his role in Miracle on 34th Street as well. By 1951, he was 64 years old, had appeared in over 100 movies, including Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, and his career was starting to decline. And that's when he heard that Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were developing a new TV sitcom that he lobbied hard to be a part of. Lucy and Desi thought having a movie veteran could help the show's successes, but CBS executive 
executives were less sure about Frawley, who had a history of alcoholism. When Desi confronted him about this, Frawley vowed never to show up for work drunk, and he didn't. He stayed with the show for its entire six-year run, and there was talk of a Fred and Ethel spinoff, which Frawley accepted, recognizing the potential you know, to make some more money with that character. But his TV wife, Vivian Vance, declined, having no desire to work with him on a show she didn't believe would be successful. In 1960, he moved on to My Three Sons, and on March 3rd, 1966, he suffered a fatal heart attack while walking along Hollywood Boulevard five days before his 79th birthday. We've got Gavin Muir as Dr. Philip Gray. Helen's is that her father, right? Helen's father? I believe it's her uncle, but I just kept laughing because his name is Dr. Phil. Oh, yeah. It is Dr. Phil. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it. Not so funny then, but pretty funny now. He was an American actor of stage and screen, primarily a Broadway actor from 1920 to 1933. His film career began in a 1932 short film and then John Ford's 1936 film Mary of Scotland, starring Catherine Hepburn and Frederick March. He went on to become a successful character actor, often playing villains with British accents, and retired in 1965. He's not credited, but he does play a significant enough role to mention. Paul Maxey plays the therapist in this movie. He was a general character actor who was in films from 1937 until his death in 1963 at the age of 56. He did TV as well up until that time. He showed up in shows such as Wagon Train, The Lone Ranger, Dennis the Menace, The Untouchables, Perry Mason, and Lassie. Lassie again. Yeah, he was also in Singing in the Rain in 1952. All right. Not, Not a super elaborate history, but he's... Funny enough in the movie that I felt we should at least give him a shout. Yeah, I mean, we certainly cut to him enough times and he gets plenty of screen time. And he actually plays really well the first time with Lou Costello. So honorable mention for sure. Definitely. Finally, John Dayheim, credited as John Day in this film. He plays Rocky Hanlon. I wasn't able to find anything about him other than the fact that he was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1916. And most of his resume is a lot of Westerns and action films. IMDb didn't have anything. Wikipedia has nothing. So that's all I got. All right. But I should say that last credit I want to do is for the effects. All the invisibility effects here were created by Stanley Horsley, whose work we've seen before. I guess he wasn't head of the special effects department, so we, I don't think we had seen his name. I could, I could be wrong about that. But I know he also worked on The Invisible Man Returns, The Invisible Woman, and Invisible Agent. And I think the invisibility effects and gags in here might be the best we have seen so far. Yeah, so conceptually, I think my favorite disappearing, reappearing kind of stuff at some point yeah, really fun gags every time with the disappearing stuff. Like I think we've we've said it over and over again. Like that is never going to be the issue with this movie. No, you know, no. they're never going to slouch on those effects. They're always going to look cool. You know, and especially in black and white, it hides so much. I feel like with the last couple Invisible Man movies, the effects have been a little bit dodgy. Like you can see the outline, the silhouette a little bit. True. Here, I don't really see. I mean, I see it a tiny, tiny little bit. For the most part, the effects are pretty seamless. Yeah, that's all I got for movie notes. Let's get into it. All right, so we open with that new Universal International logo and then a kind of animated opening credit sequence. 
Well, we have cartoon title cards. We have like animation cells, but nothing's moving, right? It tells a story. Yeah, we got storyboards. That's yeah. what they are. But we didn't have money to animate it. I have to say it's a little bit disappointing considering the uh, the full animated credits we got in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. A little. I was bummed, but it's kind of funny to see like this feels like the pitch. This feels like the pitch. They were coming in. It's like, look, we got Abbott and Costello. They think they're Holmes and Watson. And I was hoping that this was going to be they're just Holmes and Watson. in in like jolly old England and it's foggy and all that, but nope. It's none of that. <laughs> no, the movie opens and we start with their graduation. Bud and Lou are graduating from Dugan's detective training, class of 1951. There's an amazing cartoon evolution of crime on the blackboard in the background. There's also their school song. Yep. I didn't realize that it was fake until halfway through. I was had the subtitles. I was like, what are they singing about? I was like, oh, this is entirely made up for the movie. They put a lot of effort into that. Our leads, Bud and Lou, are graduating. It's clear from the ceremony here that Bud has studied his ass off, Lou not so much. And I just love that the dean there kind of goes through a whole spiel before giving Bud his diploma and then just sort of begrudgingly hands Lou his. But yeah, I love that cartoon on the blackboard. It's like Acme Crime, you know, from like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, there's like stick figures and this might not be verbatim, but like breaking and entering and and like grand larceny and like stealing cars and like it's just like different types of crimes and stuff. I like I didn't understand what that really has to do with being a detective. It's not like clues, you know? I was expecting like exhibit A This is like the first clue like that this movie more than the previous one, definitely more of a cartoon, like a live action cartoon. I mean, there's some gags in there where like Lou's hat like pops off of his head. Yeah, yeah. With the slide whistle. As well. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the things about this one. I think I wrote it down in my notes that it really feels like a cartoon. And I don't know that I necessarily like that. Well, yeah, that's what the other one was so strong because it first and foremost felt like a universal horror movie or a monster yes. movie, right? With these guys in it. This is now a Abbott and Costello film that happens to have the Invisible Man. Yes. And like, that's fine. You know, you just have to like make a hard readjustment early on yeah so like i'm watching this as an abbott and costello fan but also like first and foremost a monster fan so i want to watch a monster movie with abbott and costello so now i have to like readjust my expectations because you're right it is more abbott and costello than it is a monster movie so after the graduation ceremony bud and lou have their first job they work for a, a private eye agency right so the school sets these guys up with a job out of school They get like placement and everything. But man, again, this movie kind of like does things early on to be like, maybe it'll be better than you think. And there's a beautiful transition where he holds up his diploma and it turns into the framed diploma on the wall of the office and just kind of like pulls out. I was like, oh. That's nice. Like, I hope we get more of that. Well, it's funny that you mentioned our cinematographer. This was also shot by George Robinson, who uh, is known for being one of the better cinematographers for these movies. So yeah, I mean, that's one thing I can definitely say positive about this is that it does look really good. The park scenes, which we're going to get to later, definitely feel like a Wolfman movie. Yeah, he got to throw in some flex here and there. 
So yeah, they're in their office. Uh, Lou has his Sherlock Holmes style deerstalker hat. He's got his magnifying glass and pipe and they're like waiting for the call, right? Like they're so excited to get down to business and get their first case. And as they're talking about how Lou says, and suddenly a murderer comes in and that's when Tommy Nelson bursts through the door and he's like in an overcoat. Uh, He's got a hat and he's looking at the windows. He's clearly a guy hiding from some folks. There were two things running through my mind at this moment where it was like, okay, where else do I want to see Abbott and Costello like be in business together? Like what kind of modern context would they? And I came up with two amazing ones. And one would be, I'd love to have seen them as ghost chasers or ghostbusters. And the other is as like the Mario brothers. Like they would have been <laughs> fantastic. We're plumbers. We fall into like a wormhole and now we're in a magical land, like a babes in toy land kind of thing would have worked or, you know, very much like going to Mars for the time. Yeah. But like, I love the premise. I just wish it delivered harder on the premise. Like, I wish the mystery was better, but I love seeing them jazzed up as detectives, ready to go, getting along. It's nice to see them getting along for most of the movie. When this guy stalks in, and he definitely looks like a murderer, he's here to hire them. I love them as detectives also. I want to say this up front because it's going to become an issue as we get through the movie, probably. The one thing that I don't love about this dynamic specifically in this movie is that Bud Abbott often appears as stupid as Lou Costello. What I liked about that is that they were on the same level, you know, because in the last movie, he definitely was sort of bullying Bud Abbott was kind of bullying Luke Costello a little and like there was a there was like a hierarchy here it doesn't feel that way it feels much more like they lean on each other I I had a hard time believing that he could legitimately pass detective school you know be that good to pass and get his diploma and then not recognize a murderer two feet in front of him like that was a little bit much for me to believe now I think what worked about when they meet Frankenstein is you know Lou was always correct but Abbott was never in the room to witness what was going on. And so that dynamic played a lot better. But here they're both in the room seeing the same stuff. And the fact that Bud Abbott cannot just recognize that this man is Tommy Nelson, the guy who supposedly killed his manager. It just kills me. I cannot believe it. I'm starting to like it less now, whereas it didn't bother me as much before. The holes are a little bigger than I perceived them earlier when I watched this. But, you know, to me, I guess it's just, you know, he needs evidence that this is actually the murderer and who he says he is and all that kind of thing. I guess that was running through my brain. And the other thing was just like they needed to be at odds about this because it's sort of the main driving force of the first half of the movie is to like accept this guy's deal and believe it is who he says he is and them being hired by him. And the entire rest of the plot of the movie hinged on some of this. So again, though, we, we mentioned right from the top, right? Like they do every opportunity to draw this thing out okay like as long as possible because like this scene technically doesn't need to have that in it right but it's just like you know an extra gag or an extra couple quick one-liners that they could squeeze in here arguing about this guy's identity and the frustration that it causes on behalf of like us and the audience and stuff that gets relieved of tension hopefully with a punchline or a joke yeah I'm sorry I'm not trying to analyze comedy look it's different for everybody it's hard it's hard to review comedies in a lot of ways because it's you know everyone laughs at different things this could be in 
incredibly excruciating. So could the last, so could all of Abbott and Costello to some people, but like, you know, it depends on what your tastes are like. And, and here I want to like it to be like, just hang in there. And maybe there's an explanation for some of this. Fair enough. Fair enough. So they get this visit from the Tommy Nelson. We find out through dialogue that he allegedly murdered his manager and he's now on the run. Lou recognizes him immediately, Bud's not so sure. And then this mystery man hires these two. He doesn't explain the whole situation in this scene, I don't think. It's pretty funny. We get that terrific shot through the magnifying glass. That was a really great shot. Again, kudos to the cinematographer. But then Tommy's like, we're all going to take a ride and I'll explain on the way. And then it cuts to their destination and we don't learn anything yet. We have learned nothing. They skipped over the ride with the explanation in it. They get to the house. Fun gag with the moth on the flashlight. More of that stuff. I was thinking Batman instead of Dracula, though. (laughs) Sure, fair enough, yeah. He takes them to, I guess, his house, and they meet Helen, his wife. Then they meet the doctor, Dr. Phil, her uncle, or maybe his uncle. And I thought it was his spot, like, because he's got his whole lab set up there. I wasn't sure if it was Tommy's. I didn't think he had the salary as a heavyweight. Maybe he does. He's a fighter. This is when boxing was huge. I imagine he probably could have afforded a house this size. They don't really get into it, unfortunately. So while they're at the house, they do get separated from Tommy. So Abbott, Costello, they kind of like are waiting down on the first floor. Tommy goes to the lab and we meet. Uh, so that's their move is like they just hang out in like the foyer the hallway you know the main hallway whatever we'll just be hanging here and like who knows if they're going to go off exploring or steal something strangely like we as the audience get to see what's going on and they don't i'm trying to figure out the purpose of the ride over there it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but anyway uncle phil has been working on this invisibility serum oh man that's another thing it's not just dr phil it's uncle phil too so now i'm thinking of fresh prince sorry to interrupt the story is that john griffin they're calling him john griffin here but it's dr jack griffin from the original invisible man as we see uh, claude rain's picture on the wall he has willed phil dr phil the formula so that's how it enters this story yeah it's strangely convenient that was weird i appreciated the connection and i like the photo of claude rains and the whole nine but it was kind of weird that he would want anybody to have this plus if this was in his will so like this doesn't feel like the same time period as the original invisible man either or any of that like i don't know it's just like he died a long time ago so how long has this formula just been sitting in this dude's dresser or has he been using the guinea pigs as actual guinea pigs to test his formula for like the last you know 15 years he definitely got it right and i like the disappearing guinea pig effect where it dissolves to a skeleton of a guinea pig did this scene jump out at you at all as being like familiar because i'm pretty sure that they've used it twice before i mean it came from the invisible man returns at least and then i feel like we saw it someplace else maybe in invisible man's revenge they were doing it to the dogs in one of them remember and then the dog changed back and he became like a heroic dog at the end of that one i think i mean the specific footage of the guinea pigs right okay i wasn't sure i know it it seemed familiar but i was also i was just like there's something more chilling about the animals disappearing i feel like i've seen it twice before off the top of my head i cannot think of both of them but i know that it was at least used in the invisible man returns with vincent price that's his brothers when he's developing the serum he's got the guinea pigs so yeah this footage has been recycled a couple times 
while we're learning this information, Bud and Lou are downstairs watching football. Yeah, really. I love that too. It's like the liberties they just take in other people's houses. And the last one, they're answering the phones here. They're just watching TV and hanging out. Yep. And this is where they get confirmation that the man they're with is Tommy Nelson because the football game is interrupted by a news report with the photo of Tommy Nelson, the reward money and all that stuff. So now they know they're with the murderer. Yeah. And this is their big chance. They're going to bring him to the police and collect that reward money and they're going to be successful private eyes, you know, like right out of the gate. Oh, and there was also something, didn't Dr. Phil call this serum by name? Something like Pripatine? I don't know if that was new, that we get an actual kind of name for if this was like a medicine or you know what I'm saying? Like they named the serum in this. I'm not sure if that was the first time they tried that. I didn't write it down. I should have probably, but I think you're right. I don't know that we've gotten like an actual name for the serum up until this point. Also, football has been promoted hard, I feel, in Universal movies. Like I remember like they came up like the Orange Bowl or the Rose Bowl or something came up in Mummy movies and then other movies. I feel like this was a thing. And it's just kind of funny how they're watching football. And <laughs> this movie would probably come on before a football game on a Sunday in the 80s. And I always love a good late-breaking news bulletin of, of this just in. Yeah, the, the news is out that uh, Tommy is certainly wanted for murder of his manager. As he is warned, as soon as he comes back home, the police are looking for him. This is like the first place they would come looking for him. Sure enough, the police arrive as Bud and Lou are watching the news report and realizing that they are, in fact, with Tommy Nelson. A couple squad cars roll up outside and their first thought is they got to get Tommy before the police do so they can get credit for the arrest. Was this the part or was it later where they start to run and they're like hold on like we're detectives we we didn't do anything wrong yeah their first thought is to run <laughs> because it's the police but they're private eyes they have every right to be there so like that feels like Abbott and Costello playing detectives, right? Yes. Like they forgot their detectives for a second. So while the police are downstairs, Tommy is left unattended with the serum, which he's kind of been told is still being worked on, right? We don't know that it's ready to go, but he can't take that chance. So he immediately injects himself with it. I think it helps to know what you're in for, at least though. Like he was told that it might drive you insane. At least you know that before... Griffin had no knowledge of that, and some of the other people might not have, and the Invisible Woman had nothing to worry about. And at least in this case, he's got warning. Yeah, he's got a heads up. He doesn't know how long he has, and he doesn't know how much a dose of this stuff is either. Oh, yeah, good call. Which comes into play at the end of the movie. We'll talk about it, but like apparently dosage equals how long you stay invisible possibly something like that yeah the police come in and in there's bill frawley and his support team there they head upstairs to the laboratory tommy hides in a different room right and so we cut back to bud and lou they've sort of hid themselves away in this little drawing room trying to figure out what to do the cops are there they want to make sure they get tommy for the you know so they get the credit and the reward bud decides to go out into the hallway to check things out leaves lou behind just as tommy comes into the room to hide as well and there's a funny gag where he locks Lou in the room with the murderer. I thought that was kind of funny, but I kind of like the concept that the serum didn't work immediately. Right. Right, I'll be invisible. And then, nope. And then again, like Lou, always the witness, has to see the monster first. Witnesses the transformation. 
Yeah, he immediately turns tail and is just like, hey, I'm with you, man. Whatever you need, you know, like we're pals. And he goes to shake his hand. And that's when we get the invisibility effects here. First his hand, then his head, and then his teeth. I love how the teeth kind of hang out for an extra couple seconds. Yeah, very unsettling. I loved the handshake thing, though. Like, that was a cool idea. It's like, let's have him change on action. Yeah. You know, he's not just sort of standing still or whatever. And there's, and there's actual, like, touching another person while he's disappearing. This is really cool. And Lou, I mean, this is old hat for him. He's doing the Lou Costello scare takes. Yeah, this is, I think, where his hat might jump at one point. This is that scene, yeah. As soon as Tommy has stripped down all of his clothes, the cops, led by Bud, come down into that drawing room. Lou falls out into the hallway, starts babbling about how Tommy, like, disappeared, right? All that's left are his clothes. They give him the smelling salts when they pick him up off the floor, and that's when the hat comes bouncing off of his head. And he's just swearing up and down that he saw Tommy disappear. He's invisible. There's a great exchange where Bill Frawley is like, oh yeah, I believe you. I think you know, I think there's somebody downtown you should talk to. Oh yeah. I don't know where you've been, but I know where you're going. I like the whole play on like, you know, we're gonna go get the big net and put him in the straight jacket like he's obviously lost it kind of thing. But then the rest of the movie, everybody who doubted him like wants to end up in the nut house. They're like, We feel crazy. There was something really funny about that guy. I think it goes on too long throughout the movie, how often they play it, but I thought here it was pretty funny how they were alluding to that. I like this. Just as a fan of both Lou Costello and William Frawley, I, I love seeing them in a scene together having this interaction yeah you could feel in this movie i would say in particular like when lou costello kind of like clicks with another actor right he does it with bill frawley he does it with the psychiatrist he does it obviously with bud abbott but i feel like even him in the invisible man when he's acting kind of just to the voice yeah there's a lot of like just really good chemistry there One detail that I think we sort of glossed over is that the reward for bringing Tommy Nelson to justice is $5,000. That is what is on Bud's mind. And as soon as the police head out of the drawing room, he like kicks Lou in the butt. Like, how could you let him get away? We're going to lose that $5,000. And then Tommy starts screwing with Bud as well. And of course, there's the whole like, you kick me, that sort of nonsense. It's kind of fun how Abbott and Costello are like on the opposite sides of the deal here where Bud wants to turn him in and Lou wants to help him. It feels like they just both get kind of trapped in the situation deeper and deeper, which is, I guess, where, you know, some of the antics come into play. Yeah, I was surprised that almost like until the end, Bud is all about turning Tommy in, getting that five grand. Whereas Lou, I think, is more terrified than anything and doesn't want to double cross a man he can't see. And so is going to do whatever he can to save his own skin. Okay, so we get back to the police station. Lou is, is in therapy with the police psychiatrist. This is some of the funnier dialogue in the movie. I really do love these two together. The gag with the hypnotism really works that first time. The 10th time, it gets a little stale, I would say. Actually, but you know what? Like, there is something incredibly charming about, like, they open the door and at one point he has accidentally put like seven people to sleep with the hypnosis watch that's the scene is like he's trying to put Lou to sleep with the watch and Lou ends up putting the psychiatrist to sleep with the watch and then people keep coming in to check on him and and he's like I just did this with the watch and they all just start falling asleep in front of him and they're like what'd you do he's like I didn't do nothing I just did this with the watch and then they just fall asleep again though it's just excessive That, I think, was fun, but they revisit that well a couple times in the movie. And I think beyond the scene when Lou accidentally puts everybody to sleep, after that, I think is too much. But that scene with him accidentally hypnotizing everybody, it's a little bit cartoony, like a lot of the things in this movie. And I think that 
if you're going to enjoy this movie, you kind of have to accept that a lot of these gags are going to be a little more broad, right? This, this is not the yeah. same comedy as an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This is a little bit more broad than that. Yeah. If that works for you, you're going to be fine with it. But it's still, I think they do just keep going back to that well and really milk it dry. I don't think it's that funny of a gag, but it works pretty well at the beginning. That's what's going on here. Yep. Before Bud and Lou get out of the police station, they're met by Helen, who has this plan, right? She's going to pay them $500 to take a suitcase full of clothes and take it out to this specific spot out in the woods. Yeah. They're going to go out there and they're going to meet Tommy. Right. They're going to say, Phil's working on the reagent. They call the suitcase a grip? A grip, yeah. They did that in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They called it a grip in that too? I don't they remember did. that for some reason. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, back in the day, your suitcase was called a grip. So yeah, there's a really fun gag in here, which I, I'm pretty sure I've seen Abbott and Costello do in something else with the money. Oh, yeah. Bud Abbott has the wad of money and Lou just keeps like skimming a bill off the top or whatever. You know, it's really good back and forth. Classic Abbott and Costello routine. And it looks almost like a magic trick at one point, like he's doing a sleight of hand or something like that. It's so fast. It's so fast. They probably were trained as magicians uh, to some degree. To some degree, yeah. Okay, so I just have to bring it I'm just going to bring it up here instead of bringing it up a hundred times later. But we get a lot of Lou Costello breaking the fourth wall in this movie and this is kind of where it all starts. He's just looking right at us going like look what I'm doing and he don't see a thing and it's like <laughs> it's you and me audience we're in this together it's okay to a degree but they really like he just starts looking down the barrel of the camera at one point in the movie that's like as if to say you believe this shit and like half of it I can't it became a bit much and I didn't mind it at first but it kind of wore on me it works once Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein he does it when he pulls the tablecloth off the table that's a moment where anybody if they pulled that off they would just want somebody to have seen it so that like you saw it right like that happened that's cool so i think you get like one of those yeah and funny enough we do get a tablecloth gag again here yeah and he doesn't look at the camera i know what was that first i couldn't believe that they did that again and it wasn't even shot in a way that you could really clearly tell what was happening Right. But I like it here. I like it with the bills when he's passing the money and, and you know, taking a bill or taking the yeah. stag or whatever. Like, okay, that deserves a, a little fourth wall break. But you're right. He does tend to acknowledge the audience more than he should probably. Yeah. So now they are in the woods. And like I said earlier, this really looks like a Wolfman set. I think it looks great. The fog. God, Lou's still wearing that deerstalker hat. <laughs> Let him. I love it. And so there's a scene basically exactly like this in The Invisible Man Returns when Vincent Price changes in the woods, right? It's the same exact scene. Yeah, yeah. And he's wearing the same exact clothes. So I, I don't know for <laughs> sure, but I would guess that a couple bits from this sequence, it, like now that I think about it, were probably stolen right from that movie. A couple inserts. It's so awkward to think that like that's the one they drew from so much and didn't use Vincent Price. Like that's yeah. what blows my mind the most, but also that they didn't, you know, draw from all of the movies that like use footage from all different. If you're going to write to the footage you have, why not be a little more fun or ambitious with it and comedic with it and you know maybe it's just too modern too much of a modern way of thinking or something like that but it would have been cool if they met multiple invisible people you know the woman one or two of the invisible men or something i don't know how to how to go about it it was just on my mind at one point just because of how much it did start reminding me of that second right yeah no i i agree i think that they needed to do something different and really they needed more than just the boxing angle because so much of this it's like i know where this movie's going 
which is a little bit unfortunate. Because the other thing I was thinking was like, this could have just been Abbott and Costello are a boxer and a manager and get roped into this whole murder mystery. They didn't really need to be detectives also. It almost feels like they're detectives and then they become boxers. It's (laughs) kind of like we're making two movies in one. Although I have trouble believing Lou Costello as a boxer. You know, it works here because it's unbelievable. Some kind of harebrained scheme would have provided the answer though. (laughs) I can't imagine Lou Costello playing a character who would willingly take a punch to the face or anywhere (laughs) but anyway neither here nor there so now tommy is all bandaged up and clothed you know of course bud has no problem believing it's tommy right because he's all covered up may as well be a visible person right so the police show up tommy believes he's been double crossed he kind of takes lou hostage throws him in the car and immediately starts taking off all of his bandages again such an inefficient scene in my opinion they do that whole car ride with him driving in the front seat and they're in the back seat and they're kind of like pleading with each other or, you know, Tommy's like, you're going to work for me now. And, and he's starting to go nuts and he's like playing chicken with the cars. Like it reminded me of Clockwork Orange for a minute where he's just like driving into traffic. Yeah. So what happened was Bud tipped the police off. He was, I mean, he's again, he's still trying to get that five grand. So he figured they would go to the place with the suitcase, meet up with Tommy, and then the police would have him, right? They'd they'd all be there. They could get the credit for the collar and the police could take him to jail. But of course, Tommy's now invisible again. The police feel like they've wasted their time. Bill Frawley, pissed off, love it. So when the police leave now it's just bud and lou and tommy and this is like he makes his threat right like if you guys double cross me again i'm gonna break every bone in your body and then and this is like the first time where bud is convinced that tommy's invisible right because he gets jerked around bud and lou both know that tommy is actually invisible yes and so now we can finally get the plot proper going finally <laughs> so tommy gets behind the wheel bud and lou are in the back seat there's a fun enough gag with the unmanned car there's like a motorcycle cop who goes to pull them over and he sees yeah. nobody behind the wheel of the car and then he goes to the shrink yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's funny enough, but if they hadn't gone back to the police psychiatrist, I think it would have worked a little bit better. Yeah, and so now we're going to head to the gym and find out what we can, see if we could flush out the people responsible for actually murdering Tommy's manager. Yeah, so this is where we kind of get the full story. It's a lie. Yeah, Tommy did not kill his manager. He was set up. He was supposed to take a dive against Rocky Hanlon in their last fight together. He didn't take the dive. And so somebody killed his manager and framed him for the murder. Yeah. This is the scene where they basically come up with the plot that Lou is going to pose as a fighter. Bud will be his manager. And they will get a fight with Rocky Hanlon to get close to him, close enough to figure out who did the murder, right? I thought the idea was that now Tommy is sort of going to make it so Lou is like an amazing boxer, right? Yes. Like Lou's going to throw the punch, but Tommy's really going to throw the punch next to him. Great. I guess they come to the gym to show off and they get a fight with Rocky because Tommy wants to do the whole thing again. He's like, we'll set up a fight with Rocky. You'll agree to take a dive, but you won't. And then they're going to come after Bud to kill him. And that's when we'll catch everybody and I'll clear my name. I'm not sure if that was all squared away entirely in this sequence but that turns out to be sort of the plan for the most part moving forward 
Yeah, because this is the scene where we meet Morgan, Sheldon Leonard's character. We get the details there. We as the audience and Tommy also, because he's sitting in on that conversation. We all learn that Morgan is the guy who set up the fix the first time. Right. I think we can infer he's the guy responsible for killing Tommy's manager. They don't outright say it in that scene, but it's pretty much implied there. Yeah, he didn't pull the trigger, but he hired the guy who did. Right. This is a half hour into an 80-minute movie. (laughs) Can I say I just love that there's a box boxer named Rocky. I feel like a lot of fictional boxers were named Rocky after um, Rocky Marciano. Of course, we got Rocky Balboa. But now we got Louis the Looper, as he will be known soon. Yeah, what'd you think about the speed bag gag? It's tough for me to believe that this room of guys didn't question it at all. It's impossible for me to believe that they didn't question it at all, especially when in the final boxing match, Morgan is like... He didn't touch him, yet the guy went down. Like, he could tell from the audience at a boxing match that that it's not real. But, like, they're all in the gym. They're all surrounding this guy. They're, like, not even a foot away from him. And the things he's doing, I just wish it was a little more believable. You know what I mean? Like, the using your head gag is fine. That's fun. The other time with, like, the elbow and just not even looking, they had a good idea that they didn't really try to make work correctly it's an, another moment in a series where i think it's played a little too cartoony for me i think this needed to be played a little more straight or, or straighter than than it is oh yeah much i don't believe that this room full of boxing professionals would believe that a guy like lou costello or uh, Lou Francis could could actually be doing the things he's doing. He like holds his arms up to block his face from a punch from Rocky Hanlon and doesn't even throw a punch. And yet Rocky goes down and they're all just like, I didn't even see him throw the punch. It was so fast. I'm like, come on, guys. I could maybe understand once someone getting fooled by, you know, like a lightning fast punch or something or like too fast to see or something, but like over and over like that. It's like the darts. Like it reminds me of that one Invisible Man movie where they're at the bar and they're playing darts and we're sort of like, how can these guys, they can't be that drunk that they see these darts and they don't think something's up or whatever's going on, you know? And so I understand you need a scene like this in the movie. I just wish that like everything else, it didn't go on as long as it did because it gets less believable the longer it goes on and it just starts to sort of wear and tear and like they could have probably done a clever fun bit of knocking Rocky out and no one else seeing it it just feels like there was a workaround here to make it smoother yes it does feel like the same gag goes on for too long I agree 100% if they wanted to keep the scene to that length and just draw it out and do a series of gags that might have worked maybe where Lou is like lifting a, a barbell right like he's working out you could just vary up the gags a little bit but they keep going back to the punching bag and then you know then he punches out Rocky Hanlon and then that's the end of the scene pretty much they end that scene establishing okay well Rocky's not going to fight whoever it is he was supposed to fight he's going to fight Louis the Looper instead yeah I think if that scene had had a little more variety to it with the gags I might have bought it a little more but I mean just him in the punching bag goes on for so long I'm like come on no one's going to buy that but they do the next scene Bud Lou and Tommy are in a hotel room playing cards which I don't know why, because Tommy's going to go insane if they don't find who killed him. Maybe be a little more productive with your time, guys. But there's a whole scene where there's just card gags. Yeah, I think that's the only reason for the scene is to show the Invisible Man playing cards. Like, we are we are just going to watch a card game for a little bit. Not really going to be anything even funny about it. It's just like, look at these floating cards and pushing chips back and forth. 
it's just a poker game. Why are they killing all this time? What's going on? And- well, it turns out that they're just waiting for Helen, I guess, because she shows up. She's here to tell him that they're still working on the reagent, and we get the bathrobe look from the Invisible Man. That's right. Which was kind of nice, you know? We always got to have that. Now, we're about halfway through the movie. This is about 35 to 40 minutes in to an 80-minute movie, and Tommy starts to show his first signs of, like, the mania that is going to grip him from the, the serum. And he starts talking about how powerful he feels and how he could, like, use that power for good or for evil. Helen doesn't seem to flinch at that for some reason. <laughs> you know what I did like about this, though? Everyone is making really good icon contact with the invisible man and i know that might sound weird you know i think at this moment he's dressed like you can see where he is but i I just i remember lou costello having great awareness of where he should be looking every time that they're like either playing cards or having drinks or any of that kind of stuff so that was always fun to track Yeah, the sight lines are excellent. I noticed that as well. They're about to head out. You know, Helen leaves and she's like, let me know if he starts to act a little bit nuts. And William Frawley, the detective, shows up. And this is where Lou does the other tablecloth gag. But it happens so fast because he's just trying to hide Tommy, right? And it's like the worst hiding ever. Yeah, I don't know what they're trying to do with that. He's supposed to be an end table or something or like a coffee table. It's a card table. Tommy just like sort of squats down on the ground. They throw a sheet over him, and it's like clearly a man under that tablecloth. Yeah, we've hit, I would say, one of my less favorite gags of the movie, visually or otherwise. Like, it just didn't read for me, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just didn't look like a table. Like, he could have gotten under the actual table, and they put the cloth over that, or gotten behind the chair and take his clothes off or something. Yeah, but Frawley pulls the sheet off of Tommy, and it just reveals his crumpled up robe and pajamas. Because Detective Roberts is like, oh, that's definitely Tommy under there, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you're caught. Which would have been an interesting turn of events is if the detective got in on it. But like, it would have been funny if they revealed him to be the Invisible Man. And then he's like sort of out of the game for the rest of the movie or something like that. For a while, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a weird character to introduce and then not really utilize all that much. That's another thing I don't love about. I mean, yes, I would love to see more William Frawley in this, but at the same time, the character does seem somewhat important to the story to forget about him for what, maybe 25% of it, maybe even 40% of it seems strange. Certainly. Yeah. He heads out. I mean, he was just trying to figure out where's Tommy. So with him gone, the three Tommy, Lou and Bud go to dinner. I think there's some fun gags here where they're sitting in a booth. Tommy's in the rear of the booth. Bud and Lou order dinner. And then Tommy's like, I'll take the spaghetti and a steak. That's fun too. And then that gets worn real thin as well unfortunately because we spend a lot of time at the bubble room we didn't mention it by name but the name of the restaurant is the bubble room that's where like the mob hangs out not the mob with pitchforks and torches but the actual mafia this time and i thought about that dan we get a mob but it's the wrong mob (laughs) (laughs) and this is like a real swanky sort of like reminded me maybe of cotton club or something like that that kind of place and they're really living it up with the high class folks this was kind of fun to see yeah ordering all the food the invisible man really being brazen right yes just talking like he's just not invisible like it's like anyone could overhear him yes he's talking i mean he started doing that in the gym before you know just kind of talking but here he's talking he's just picking up food not caring who sees it later he's gonna get drunk and start a bunch of shit he gets sloshed (laughs) for a guy who's on the lamb and has plenty of incentive 
to keep a low profile. He is, you're right. Brazen is the word. He kind of throws caution to the wind and just, he's going to behave however he wants. Because remember, he feels very powerful. It's that invisible serum. It gives him power. What did he say? Like, I'm the king of an invisible world or something? Like, it was a very sort of cryptic line. I was like, he's losing it for sure. Yeah. But this scene's important, uh, not just for the gags, but we meet Boots and we get to meet Morgan sort of properly here. He's setting up what's going to go down. We know that he was behind the fix with Tommy and Rocky previously. Here, he's going to try and pull the same thing. He's going to send Boots over to seduce Lou and try to get him to agree to go down in the fifth. That conversation happens in a later scene. We'll get there. But like that's what's being set up here. I mean, we love Boots Marsden. I think that Adele Jurgens does a great job here. She's one of the more fun characters to watch. Yeah, I like that I'm sure it's just not exclusive to the last movie and this one. I'm sure, I mean, if memory serves, it runs throughout a lot of these movies is that there's always the gorgeous girl that is going to be hitting on Luke Costello and trying to schmooze him for information and and things like that. And then Bud's just not going to be able to believe, like, why is it him? That, I think, is just a popular uh, Abbott and Costello thing. I like seeing it, though. That's actually something that services the plot for this particular movie. I think it actually works a little better in this movie than it did with like the insurance agent in the last movie right where like she could have just been an insurance agent or whatever and like been investigating she didn't need to lie exactly she didn't need to be into Lou in that movie that's what I mean right yeah but here they're grifters yeah they're mobsters and stuff so like this is all part of their hustle and everything so I like that yeah yeah I think she's wonderful in this they talk about how they're staying at the same place she arranges a date with Lou later that evening like i said she's going to try and convince him to go down and there's going to be a reward in it for him and so on but before we do that the food comes to the table and we get some fun food gags we of course get the lady in the tramp spaghetti gag (laughs) couldn't believe it and i mean i thought it was funny like i was like i can't believe they're doing this and they pulled it off like that was really clever and good effects and stuff it was like this is wild i thought it was hilarious the lady in the tram gag is fine i think it's a little bit obvious but i'm okay with it what i really love most about this particular moment is when before lou realizes that the plate's been slid out from in front of him he like starts twisting his napkin thinking it's the spaghetti and then sticks that in his mouth i thought that was pretty well done yeah so all in all some good execution for the dinner scene yeah i mean nothing groundbreaking but definitely a solid execution there so after dinner lou is gonna meet with boots you know for their date and on the way they get some flowers they get this big ass like pot of flowers the plan is They hid like a record player in there, like a record recorder, right? Yeah. I've seen these a handful of times in things, not very often. But the idea is they're going to go, he's going to send them in there with the flowers. He's going to start recording onto this wax vinyl record. Yeah, on a seven inch. Yeah. And he's going to get her to admit that they set up Tommy so that can be their evidence to take to the police. So that presumably so so that Lou doesn't have to go through with the fight, right? Because right. They have the evidence, they can just turn it in, and that's the end of it. Clear Tommy's name. 
So this blew my mind, the concept that they would have the flowers bugged with a listening device. And, you know, this is a wire. It's like before wires, but yeah. like it's the concept of a wire. And I mean, that's awesome. Like I ne never expected to see that in this movie. And I think it's hilarious how they hid like this micro phonograph inside of this bouquet of flowers. It's just utterly ridiculous that this is even, you know, not only is it completely impractical, but it like it would never work. And if it did it all like they recorded on wax cylinders you know like i'm sure you could have done this more it would have been a little more believable with like a wax cylinder or something but like the technology to do this does not exist back then <laughs> which made it incredibly awesome it's very awkward to watch today but I, I can't imagine it was it would be all that practical back then either it's 1951 right so the cold war is like it's at the, we're at the beginning of the cold war I don't know enough about, you know, what sort of recording devices they would have had. Yeah, they probably didn't have things small enough yet. You know, I'm thinking of Not like yet. microfilm and like hiding stuff in your shoe and, and all those yeah, kinds yeah, yeah, of yeah. things. But I, I don't know, it's maybe a few years off of that. But, you know, it plays more like steampunk than science fiction or something. Kind of, like yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, definitely impractical. I can say that much. I'm sure audiences were roaring at this, though, because it's that kind of thing. You know, it's like the kind of thing of like, who on earth ever thought of this? Like, this would never work. Like, look how insane these people are to think of this. And so they don't get her admitting that they set Tommy up, but they do get her proposing the fix for Lou's fight, right? He'll go down in the fifth and there's going to be a nice payday for him if he does. Once he has that recorded, she leaves the room for a second. He grabs the record off the phonograph and has nowhere to put it but in his pants. And of course, she kind of gets him in the, the armchair, sits on his lap and breaks the record. So that's the end of their evidence. So much for that. Provided for a fun scene, though, and a lot to talk about. This is classic Lou Costello, beautiful woman, right? Like, it doesn't break any new ground, but it's something he's very good at, and she does a really good job in that scene as well. Agreed. So now Tommy is back at the bar with Bud. He's starting to get drunk, and Bud has to cover for him. And I think I really enjoy Bud in these scenes because he's so often the straight man that I liked watching him have to cover for Tommy and like pretend to be drunk and quote Shakespeare. That all seemed like something you don't see from Bud Abbott too often. Yeah, that's what I was sort of saying, I guess, earlier with their sort of equal intelligence level, maybe, or like the playing field has sort of been leveled between them a little bit, is that he gets to take the brunt of some stuff and it's a different angle for him, certainly, because most of the times he's the one I feel delivering, not on the receiving end. And so here we get to see him acting more like Lou Costello would. A little bit, yeah. More on that side of the fence, I would say. He's being strong-armed in this scene, whereas I feel usually he's the man with like all the confidence. Here, I think he's playing it as like scared for his life, really, is like what it seems half the time. And then the other half is just like, you know, trying to cover for the invisible man being there the best he can with the waiter. Maybe that's an issue with the concept as a whole, right? Because so in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, for most of that movie, Bud Abbott doesn't realize that the Wolfman is real, the Frankenstein monsters real Dracula's real. he doesn't know and so he, he can walk through these scenes with that arrogance that confidence to boss Lou around but here he knows the reality of it for most of that movie and so the dynamic is kind of broken right the classic Abbott Costello dynamic doesn't work as we know it in previous films and so maybe that's what it is maybe it's just that I'm so used to it being one way that then when they try it here it just feels wrong well, I'm enjoying it because they don't do it, I guess, that often. 
I don't want this all the time. What would have been really interesting that they couldn't do because they meet the Invisible Man is sort of something, and I don't want to skip too far to the end, is sort of what they kind of hint at at the end is like if one of them became invisible for the movie. Sure. They could never do that because we need to see them the whole movie. On the one hand, it feels wrong and, and I, I kind of don't like it. But like I said, I do at the same time kind of like Bud Abbott, at least in this particular scene, having to cover for Tommy and play drunk and be a little bit silly. I don't get to see Bud Abbott be silly too often. So so yeah, I feel both ways about it. It's complicated. <laughs> you know what is nice about them acting with an invisible man though is that they each get scenes alone for them to showcase, right? Like that's really cool. Like I like that a lot and that must have been refreshing for them as well. I like that. You know, they don't always have to be together and sometimes that alone can get a little like stale, right? Like you like to see them go off on their own sometimes and and do their own thing and then come back together and find out what each other was up to. So now after the date, Boots and Lou return to the the little club there. All hell kind of breaks loose. It starts when (laughs) Lou poses for a photo with a photographer as like pouring champagne into one of Boots' shoes and spills it all over that guy's head. It's pretty funny. I'm still trying to figure out if that was an actual thing in the day that people with way too much money just did was like ruin shoes and drink out of them and stuff. Like, what is the point of that aside from just like a cool looking photo maybe? But here it was funny to cause sort of like the fountain onto the dude who wanted to like beat the crap out of him after. It was a fun visual. I really enjoyed that. Be honest. I do love posing for lots of photos in this movie. Like everybody's always getting their picture taken. So now Tommy getting drunk at the table starts talking about how he's destined for greatness and a sort of megalomania is starting to develop. Yeah, and he's kind of getting on my nerves here a little. Like I think they push him a little too hard. I feel like he just won't shut up. Like he just won't stop drinking. Like he's almost becoming a nuisance. I'm thinking like lock him up. He needs to sleep it off soon. This scene really underlines how not urgent he is to find the guy who set him up it's not even him it's the movie you know it's the movie that's taking its time to be like we need to sort of like get in some gags some more invisible man stuff maybe and this is just what we are working with because of the premise and because of the locations it's like we can't really do much more than screw with the waiter for a good 15 minutes out of this movie There's like a short scene that is cut into here. I don't know why it's here because it doesn't really do anything. So we get a quick scene with Morgan and Boots and Rocky, and they're just kind of talking about how they're fixing the fight. I don't really understand the point of this scene because we already know all of the information in it. We just get a sense that Morgan is extra determined to make it work. Seems unnecessary, but it's another scene with Sheldon Leonard. So sure. I'll take it. It's really just to break up this club sequence with Tommy making a fool of himself and he's at the bar stealing other people's drinks there's another encounter with the man who had champagne poured onto his head there's a great bit here where tommy goes to steal another guy's drink so bud tries to like cover for it and in the in turn gets punched in the face yeah which was cool (laughs) i like seeing bud take a punch to the face there's the thing where tommy's only protecting lou yes like he doesn't like bud because bud keeps trying to have him arrested and stuff so he won't pretend for him so bud's like like, I got this one, right, Tommy? And then, nope, he's not there to protect him. And, like, I feel like everybody gets knocked out in this scene. Yeah, this is another scene that just tends to go on a little too long, though, I think. In the end, Lou gets knocked unconscious by the bar. The bartender has this comical-sized mallet. This is seriously Donkey Kong-sized. This is the mallet 
footage from that video game. Talk about cartoon. He just starts playing whack-a-mole with the bar patrons. He knocks Lou out. He knocks the guy who, who punched Bud in the face unconscious. Tommy tries to revive Lou with some soda water. Doesn't work, so they have to carry him out. And the bartender watches Bud and Tommy carry Lou out of this bar. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he's like lifted from his feet. That was a good visual. Okay, so on the way out of the club, they get sort of caught in the revolving door. Tommy gets knocked unconscious. Uh, Lou wakes up, and then Bud and Lou have to carry Tommy through the revolving door while William Frawley watches. Which, I like the idea. I don't, I'm not quite sure if they mimed that accurately. Definitely did not. There's no way three people were folded into that revolving door. I think they should have just left it with Tommy and Bud carrying Lou. Like, that was a great visual, you know? And I think they could have made it through the door and and just, like, end the scene. And now for the third time, somebody is back at the police with the police shrink. This time, William Frawley is going under hypnosis. So we've we've had Lou... We've had that motorcycle cop, and now we've had Bill Frawley, Detective Roberts, all being hypnotized. Joke is officially dead, I think. We'll find out. (laughs) I'm officially over it, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, I've been over this. So I love this next scene. Tommy is back home with Uncle Phil, Helen, Bud, and Lou. He is in like like a hospital bed he's got some bandages on his head and uh, a big ice pack pretty solid invisible effects here yeah they had to make it look like this invisible man had all this stuff on his head works pretty well i think they just made some kind of like crown out of everything like and it's like puppeted so i thought i was like oh i was trying to figure out how they did it you know because you could see around all edges of the bandage like as if you're looking through the guy and i was like okay it's probably just like yeah some some sort of contraption like a helmet or something like that that you would put on yeah no it looks good though I, i really like this effect totally yeah the ice pack really sells it and so now it's the night of the fight and they have a conversation about what they're going to do they're planning to double cross morgan and his goon yeah we know this you know like it's so weird that we're going over the plan again but the thing that uh, tommy doesn't know is that uncle phil has no intention of letting him leave his mental state is starting to deteriorate and they're worried that you know what could happen if they release him before the reagent is finished so what i thought was going to happen which would have been the end of the movie maybe i don't know how it would have gone but if dr phil poked tommy with the reagent against his will and he like became visible in the middle of the fight or something like that and everything just like really went to hell at that point that could have been fun so yeah when bud and lou head down to the fight assuming that Tommy will be there. Tommy has a moment where he feels like he's paralyzed, I think he says. Uh, He can't move. The sheet gets pulled off, and you can see that his arms and legs are are, are strapped down. And so now Bud and Lou are heading to a fight with Tommy not behind them. The Invisible Man strapped down was pretty cool visual as well where you just see the straps like the the bed shaking is all you really got to do yeah <laughs> it's cool i like the news report that immediately follows so this character is recurring he's he, he pops up a couple of times the, the reporter it's pretty terrific pretty terrific it reminded me a little bit of like howard cosell from when i was a kid would like chime oh, yeah. in during the evening news and stuff it would be like this is howard cosell louis the loop He's going after Rocky tonight. It's not a bad Howard Cosell. What we learned from this little bit here is the news has broken that Lou had kind of like a wild night the night before. There's photos of him drinking, getting carried out of the bar, all that stuff. Yeah, paparazzi. I couldn't believe it. I thought that was pretty funny. Like, I'm sure it was funny then too, where you see them in the tabloids and stuff, but like, that's such a 
part of like our culture, the paparazzi stuff that is just like, oh, that's pretty clever that, you know, you would see that in like, I don't know if it was, but like in Creed, you know, like it's a modern boxing movie. I could see them being like exploiting his image or something. Totally. We find out that the news affected the betting the following day. So that afternoon, the uh, the odds went pretty heavy in Rocky's favor. No one expects Louis the Looper to come out on top of this fight. You would think that would have been part of the mob's plan would have been to like, let's devalue this guy even more so that when we bet on him, we win even bigger or something. But that they just did that themselves, being dummies, changed their odds. I think the original idea was everybody in the world was going to be betting on Lou to win this fight. And they were going to bet on Rocky so that when Lou went down in the fifth, they could reap all of that profit, right? The odds should have been in Lou's favor. And then when Lou goes down, they're part of that small pool of people who bet Rocky and they go home with the payday. So now the odds have changed because of Lou's behavior the night before. So I'm not entirely sure how the betting or how if he goes through with the original plan, how that helps Morgan. It's a little bit confusing. If anything, Boots should have been hanging around making sure he didn't get into more trouble instead she just kind of bails and is like peace i'm out of here and then all of this mayhem happens for the newspapers yeah we get to the locker room and lou is in his robe i love that he's like sponsored by the detective school that they graduated from but he's doing everything he can to get out of this fight because he doesn't believe tommy's gonna be there but he does get a delivery somebody sends him in a little package and they open it up and it's a flower box full of lilies and a note that says you can smell them or wear them the fifth round will tell so a uh, little bit of intimidation there lily's a uh, notoriously given at uh, funerals i guess you know like i mean at least if i see them a lot there but i think they're associated with that right yes <laughs> i know james bond once said uh, you should have brought lilies I always think of that scene in Little Shop of Horrors when the shop is very busy. They get a phone call for like a funeral and, and Audrey says, hand me the lilies. Notoriously associated with funerals. So I love, I do really like the gag where Lou like lays down on that, I guess, massage table and uh, Bud lays the flowers down just right on his chest. Pretty funny. And then he, he realizes what's going on and, and hops right up. There's also money in the flower box as well. Quite a bit of money, several thousand dollars. This struck yeah. me as strange. Let me know if you picked up on this. That was a stack of thousand dollar bills. He goes a thousand for me, a thousand for you. And then 4000 for him. Yeah, very strange. So like when he was doing that bit, I was like, are they sure that he doesn't just mean hundreds? And did I mishear something? And then he's like, we got $15,000 here. I was like, really? I was like, that's an awful lot of money. But okay. I love the gag. Like, who's the other guy? Oh, it's the tax man. Just before the fight is about to get underway, Tommy does show up. He's managed to escape from the lab. And the plan's going to go ahead as they had discussed it. I did want him to show up. I just wish we could have seen him escape or something. It's just like, I'm here now. Just don't question it. Trust me. I I escaped. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit convenient. Considering it's a comedy, I guess he can get away with it. Like like we said before, this is an Abbott and Costello Um, movie more than it is a monster movie. But again, it just makes me feel like the scene of him strapped down to the table is only there for the effects and it has nothing to do with the story whatsoever because it has no bearing and so that just that just kind of irks me sometimes absolutely i'm just wondering if there's a way to like justify it because it's a comedy you know comedy gets away with more 
I think, in terms of like those sorts of technicalities. Yeah, I think the idea is like we've accepted enough already at this point. Why not just accept that he broke the straps? So now is the fight sequence, which we don't have to go through every single bit of it. No, but I will say this about it. I think it's broken up into three rounds really well. The first round, they really push the whole concept of these phantom punches that I've been calling them sort of as like blue punching, but Tommy being the actual impact and the force they do over and over this stuff. The one thing I really don't like is how he blocks the punches. He'll like block a punch midair and then throw it back at Rocky. And even the guys in the crowd are like, he's not even hitting him. What's going on over there? Something's fishy. I like round two because that's the round that Lou gets the crap kicked out of him. And like, not that that's why I like it, but I think Lou Costello does a great job doing stunt work here, getting all the punches. Yes. There's a really long take of him just getting beaten. It looks like it's very well choreographed. And then round three was cool because everything, for the most part, felt like it gelled correctly. Like Tommy comes back and punches, for the most part, seem more believable, except for when Lou covers his face entirely. And it's like, what are you doing? Lou starts out afraid to fight. He, in fact, he goes down on his own and Tommy has to like sort of threaten him not to throw the fight. The ring announcer is like, there's certain to be an investigation into this, folks. (laughs) It starts there and then Lou gains some confidence as Tommy starts to go to town. Physically, I don't know how this could ever work, but you know, for the sake of the movie, it, it does. It's fine. I don't think there's a TKO rule, right? It feels like they go down a lot of times. I don't think so. I don't know what the rules of boxing were in 1951. I'm pretty sure by right. now, like if this were to happen now, it would probably be over early. But about halfway through the fight, Tommy gets knocked out. And so Lou is left all by himself. And, th- and this is probably my favorite part of the fight. Lou knows Tommy is unconscious. And so he goes back to his corner to get the water bottle and just starts spraying water all over the place to try and get Tommy revived. I actually really enjoyed that. Yeah, I liked it earlier too when he was knocked out in the bar and they couldn't find him that's like a fun thing to think about is like you don't know where to look for him and here he's down in the ring so like they start tripping over his body like that was actually pretty good use of it definitely i really enjoyed that gag the fight's got a bunch of other fun gag i mean morgan starts to realize that something's fishy with it but yeah i mean this thing goes on for maybe 10 minutes it's almost like a full boxing match. Like it's just going on for too long. And you know, they say you go down in the fifth. I thought he was going down in the third. It's like, we're never going to make this, you know, we're never going to get to the end of this. Like it's going to take forever (laughs) to watch this fight. And there's a lot of like the mugging to the camera. And I do like how Lou's dancing around at first. Like he's very light on his feet, but it's a lot. It's a lot to end this movie climactically with a boxing match, like a monster movie. It feels like something's a little off about all of that. Right, 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 right. Like, it's certainly, like, more of a boxing movie now than a detective movie or a monster movie. Yeah, it doesn't really know what it wants to be. There is some fun stuff in here. It just feels like it's in the wrong movie at times. So at some point during the fight, Tommy leaves the ring, kind of leaves Lou all by himself, because I think he notices something's going on with Morgan. So he runs out of the ring and, like, grabs an empty seat nearby to, like, overhear that conversation. And Morgan is putting a plan in place just in case things go awry and he's got one of his guys he's going to put on a cop uniform and if Lou doesn't take the dive in the fifth they're going to go in there and do the same thing that they did to Tommy's manager yeah I think he even says to his buddies he's like we'll do the same exact thing yeah like we gotta 
away with it last time. Like, that's my deal. I don't think of a new thing to do. Like, we're just going to repeat it. I just think that's hilarious. Like, I don't know if that's intentionally funny, but that's some of the stuff I'm laughing at is like, we got away with it once. We'll definitely get away with it again. And we're going to do it again and again. These gangsters have one move, you know, they only do the one thing. Yeah. So by this point, Lou is like exhausted, right? He's taken a legitimate beating in there and taking it pretty well. That also seems strange to me that he wouldn't be like completely torn apart. Yeah, he turns out to be a better boxer than anyone expected. Like, maybe he didn't need Tommy's help after all. It makes me think, oh, I'd have believed the movie of Abbott and Costello like in the ring them as boxers. I would have bought it. Yeah, for sure. And so in the third round, Louis the Looper knocks Rocky out and they head back to the locker room where Morgan, he's got his guy standing right outside the locker room in his cop uniform. He has that one line. He's like, I hope my mother don't see me. On their way to the locker room, Bud and Lou encounter Helen and Uncle Phil and Phil has the reagent and so they just have to get to Tommy and they can make him visible again. Also, William Frawley, Detective Roberts shows up and he knows something's up too. So... Everything's about to like descend upon the locker room here. I love when that happens too. I love how like everybody's here for the final curtain call. They've come together at the finale. Yeah, the cops sitting outside the door again. Obviously, one of Morgan's guys, Bud and Lou, head into their locker room there, and there's Morgan and like one of his men. This is where Bud's gonna get it, presumably. Except they're not the only ones in the room. No, no, Tommy's in there also. I thought this was a pretty solid sequence. I mean, this, maybe more than anything else, blends the whole gangster boxing movie with the Abbott and Costello comedy pretty well. And the Invisible Man of it all as well is coming into play here really nice too. So like, yeah, in the end, it all sort of worked out for the most part. For what we're working with, like I, I was expecting you know, something less action-oriented for a climax. I thought the boxing match was going to be it. I, I expected this to sort of fizzle, but to be quite honest, some of the best stuff is right here in this scene when they're having this little fight and the gun exchanges hands and it goes back and forth and the steam is kicking and we see the outline of Tommy. Like It's all very cool. Yes, yes. And we do get the confession. Tommy gets the confession from Morgan when he's got his arm like held behind his yep. back. But then... Morgan starts wasting bullets, right, from his gun. Shoots one into the wall, one into the radio. Tommy gets a hold of the gun. Bud knocks out Morgan. And then Morgan's crony there comes to and manages to throw a knife into Tommy's chest. There was some fun business with the gun when it fell into the water cooler and Lou had to grab it with his boxing glove on and all that. And it became a water gun for a minute and then he shoots the radiator. That's where all the steam comes from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But dude, when that thug pulls out the switchblade and threw it at the Invisible Man, I was like, oh, <laughs> that, that was cool. That was a cool little like twist, cool little moment. I, I was just definitely not expecting that to happen. Right. That's about the time when uh, William Frawley and the other cops come barging in, Helen, everybody. I thought it was a little bit funny how Detective Roberts immediately believes that Morgan and his goon were the guilty parties there. He like barges in. They tell him, oh, that's the guy. And he's like, all right, you mugs, get these guys into handcuffs. You know, like doesn't stop yeah. the question it at all. I definitely had the same thoughts running through my head. I was like, why are they believing Abbott and Costello? Like, who are they? They're just these stupid detectives like that have not been on the up and up with him the whole movie and, and everything. And it's like, maybe he was talking to Helen and Phil for a little while and, and they set him straight on a couple things. But like, ultimately, it's just wild that he's like, okay, if you say so. Yeah. 
100%. I mean, it works. It's fine. It's a comedy. We got to get out of here. You know what I'm saying? Like, this this has to end some way. And, like, there's been harder exits in better movies. I'll just put it like that. <laughs> That's for sure. And then the final sequence we get, it's a nice little tag where Tommy is brought back to being visible again with a, another blood transfusion. Universal loves their blood transfusions. As a side effect, <laughs> some of that blood ends up in Lou, which makes him invisible. He officially becomes an invisible man you know like he has joined the ranks but the gag is that because of the transfusion there's only like a little bit of that serum in there so it's only gonna last like a short while lou not realizing that goes running off into the hospital they get into an elevator full of nurses i like i love that they all get in and then when they come back out all the nurses are like smacking bud for being i guess a little handsy in there and that's the whole gag but then lou starts to turn visible again of course he's naked and for some reason that makes zero sense to me his legs are on backwards did that make any sense to you no but before i address that which i'm going to i first have to say you know this whole concept of like the dosage right they didn't play with that at all the entire movie like that would be a really cool concept for the invisible man serum we might have gotten into that where the guy turned back and forth or maybe he was just using the reagent i I forget they've all sort of blended together for the most part oh i remember the invisible agent pretty well but i wish we had had an opportunity to deal with that at some point in the invisible man series this concept of like it's not permanent for once in that like it all depends on how much is in your system yeah i feel like you could have built maybe like a heist movie around that yeah you know you're only going to need to be invisible for a short period of time so then you just use whatever you need get in get out maybe the plot goes wrong right so now you're turning visible again mid heist what do you do that could have been a fun concept to mess with yeah yeah i like that idea i wish we got a little bit of that but now okay so this other thing of him being on backwards and stuff like yeah what is this like this really really this is not the way i wanted to end this movie at all like i thought it was a incredibly charming and cheeky gag that he's running around the hospital naked and he becomes visible again and he just he has to grab a towel and someone's like hey you stop and then he just runs out of the frame run out of the hospital you can't catch me leaving a man-sized hole in the door so yeah what we don't need is that like he's running forwards and backwards like at the same time in a very poorly processed shot that is just insane and then you know talk about cartoons all day like we've been talking about like he leaves a outline of himself in the glass of the door or whatever just like he was a looney tune yeah i don't know man it didn't feel like quality to me you know what i'm saying it felt like a flat note to go out on and i and i was having as much fun as i could for the whole movie we talked about today like this isn't like an entire waste or anything like that. Like there's still some fun to be had. It's just, I don't like this at all. I kind of hate this. (laughs) And that's a very strong word that I don't think I've used on the show before, but like, I think I kind of hate this. I feel like the gag maybe could have worked in a different movie, maybe with Frankenstein, right? Where he gets put together wrong and then, then you can Perfect. have his legs on backwards, right? But to put it here, it feels like it's a it's an okay gag in the wrong movie. You're right. Frankenstein would have been the perfect place for this. Let me just say right now, I don't necessarily want this gag in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I don't want this gag at all, but you know, sure. if we have to, if we have to stretch for a place to put it, this is not where it should be. I guess this is a good place to end. Mike, would you like to add anything else to your thoughts on Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man? Thinking about it now, it's kind of insane how every movie there's a new Invisible Man. 
Yeah. When you get to it at the end of the day, I guess it's worth it. Okay. Like it's worth it because they held on to that, if nothing else, is that sure. like it's always going to be someone new. That's neat. You can't really say that about any of the other Universal monsters. The most you could say is that Frankenstein turned into Bella the Hunchback for a little while in one of the movies. Right. But like for the most part, like it's all the same being. So like that's kind of fun. And I always love Avenue Costello, even when it's not the best. And this one, unfortunately, you know, I think I just had certain expectations that I don't feel were incredible, right? Like, I don't feel like my expectations were huge. It's just like they were sort of built up and broken bit by bit as I was watching the movie. You know, it's like, oh, they're detectives. Oh, this is the mystery. And then it's like, oh, the Invisible Man. It's like, this is what they're going to do with the Invisible Man. And, you know, and then it's like, oh, they're boxers now. Like, it, I just, yeah. it kind of felt like an identity crisis. But that added to some, you know, maybe unintentional comedy along the way there's still some genuine laughs here going on but for the most part it is at the bottom for me unfortunately i don't know if it's at the very bottom but we haven't watched everything yet but it is close there for me and i know i might have come off a little harsh on it but i tried to be the best as possible while discussing it so uh, hopefully it didn't come across too harsh we definitely tried to find the stuff we like about it while also acknowledging that it's a confusing movie it doesn't really do anything very well i don't even think abbott and costello are particularly bad in this the worst i could say about them is i think that they are kind of phoning in their performances a bit but they're doing things that they've made a career doing right so they're still good at it it's not like they're being lazy or cutting corners it just doesn't seem like they are all that into the material and to be fair i think that's kind of what we're circling this whole episode is that the material is just not that great and so it's hard to expect more from them all things considered so they are doing decent work with what they have to work with i just think that script is trying to do too many things at once and it doesn't really manage to do anything particularly well yeah it's funny and there are some gags in here that are funny and and, and enjoyable but it's a confusing plot you know it just it rarely makes sense yeah and and i think at the end of the day what they were mostly going for here was comedy not horror and most of the horror is actually crime right Right. And, you know, where I stand on that, like, I think a lot of crime is horror related anyway, but this isn't exactly the type of movie that stands up to scrutiny. You know what I'm saying? We're not supposed to think this hard about it, I feel, but like, this is the show. So the movie is going to get analyzed whether it's meant to or not. Yeah, 100%. Us. And that's And that's the fun, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm having fun. So uh, probably just for the completionist out there, you could probably skip this one if you had to. Well, I think that about wraps it up. But before we finish up here, we do have some listener mail. All right. Let's get to that. I always love hearing from our listeners. If you would like to write to the show, you can do so at themonsterstheatmadeus at gmail.com. We love to hear your questions, comments, thoughts, anything you want to say. We will absolutely read it on the show. Uh, So we have two emails. I want to start with this two-part email from listener Rick Seam. He wrote twice in the same day. He wrote to the show and then he followed up with a second email. So I'm going to break those up for you. And just so our listeners know, if you haven't listened to it yet, Mike and I were both on our friend Brian's show, or actually it's Mike and Brian's show, Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. I was on that show to talk with them about Bram Stoker's Dracula. So that gets mentioned here. So if you haven't listened to that, go listen to that. And here we go. So he says, guys, great episode on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Wish you had gone two episodes. So do I, Rick. Anyway, he says, listening to your take on Coppola's Dracula on Uncle Francis, and I think you overlooked some story elements with regard to Jonathan Harker. First of all, he's trapped 
traveled from England to Transylvania before the days of jet planes and cars. So he's exhausted by the time he gets to Dracula's castle. And then once he's there, vampires are feasting on him. So he's not in any position to be kicking butt. Oh, that's an interesting point right there that he's been traveling a lot before the days of comfort travel like he's been on the road for a long time and it was a road of hell like boats and carriages and bullshit i'm sure on that show i know i made this point i think you did too mike that jonathan harker is just kind of a bland hero and like the fact that he gets to dracula's castle and like he's just a a victim the entire time is a little bit uninteresting i think that was my point i might have called him a wimp or something along those lines you know what i mean but like it's interesting that like you know i don't put that into consideration is like the castle has like a spell and there's all this weird shit and like he's all disoriented and stuff like I, i like all that now 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 i'm leaning off of Jonathan Harker a little bit. He continues saying, once he's back in England, though, I agree he is the damsel in distress while Dracula steals his lady. He must have listened to more of that episode because it's a two-part episode because he wrote back a few hours later. Awesome. Let me preface this by saying that I called Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula a shit show. I mean, it's been a while since we had that conversation, but I think I said that like in a good way. There's a lot going on there. Visually, it's kind of insane. The performances are all over the place, but that's one of those things that I, that I like about it. Clearly, I use the word shit show to describe it. So <laughs> Rick starts the second email saying, shit show, just finished part one of the discussion. Respectfully, I beg to differ, but I had to wait several decades for a film that was more faithful to the book than any other adaptation. Not quite the film I would have made would have dropped the romance angle that was not in the books, as I recall, but it does provide a rationale for Dracula to go after Mina. Why do monsters, King Kong, the Gill Man, amongst others, always lust after female humans? I don't know. It seems like a very strange thing for monsters to do, but yeah, you're right. That is a, a very popular trope. Yeah, you would think that they would be out there looking for their own kind, but I guess he's trying to convert right he's like scientology he's like come with me to my (laughs) castle and take this audit i think the real answer though is like just historically women tend to be perceived as the weaker sex you know that's a very old school way of thinking not necessarily one i subscribe to but you know we have so much media where that is sort of the belief and and so it's become a trope for that reason so but still strange if i may sort of defend your calling coppola's dracula a shit show in Uh a sense like it totally is like it's an insane movie that's out of control like but it works like it totally works like just because it's like everywhere at once you know is the feeling i get from it like it has to be like dracula needs to be an insane experience if you want to do it right and like i think you know he did it right and he captured the essence and might not have come across the way you meant it but i understood at the time what you were saying yeah i think at the end of the day rick and i we both enjoy this movie for the same reasons because like the thing one of the things i do like most about that movie is that it is is maybe the most faithful adaptation of Dracula that we have. But just the big swings that Coppola takes, I mean, that movie is just out of control. Yeah. And just like the merging of all the assets of it, of like the visual effects and the the dialogue and the gore, the sex, like everything is just amped up and I love it. 
Uh, listeners, if you have not listened to that two-part episode, you can find all of that at cageclub.me. And you can also find Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great show. Mike does all of the um, impersonations and it's amazing. So go listen to that. But Rick continues. He then goes on to mention something that I think I referred to on that show as well. I think I mentioned Dracula Daily. So Dracula Daily is on Substack. It's a person decided to publish the full novel of Bram Stoker. Dracula as it occurs in the novel, like on the days. So every day when uh, a letter or a journal entry is written, that's when you get it in your email. And so a lot of people were subscribed to that, myself included, and we were reading Dracula in real time. So Rick goes on to say, speaking of which, the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, which owns Bram Stoker's handwritten notes, conducted a week-by-week reading and discussion of the novel online a couple years ago at the height of the pandemic. In the discussion over Zoom, the participants noted that there are contradictions in the chronology between dates and entries by different members of the book. Does the Daily Dracula address anything like that? Huh. To answer that question, I don't think so. I think it was literally just taking the text from the novel and then just publishing it. Although there were some moments where some of it was consolidated, like the Demeter journal entries were sort of put together as their own thing. I can't remember specifically. It was quite some time ago. The author did take a few liberties with the text, but I don't think that particular issue was ever addressed. Rick says, I encourage you to read the book, at least the first four chapters. Once Dracula disappears from the action, the story bogs down, in my opinion. But you have to admit that Stoker was very thorough in figuring out train schedules and the like, if that's your thing. Yeah, I think he wanted to write travelogues like visit Brussels, enjoy, you know, waffles. Like, yes. I don't know. Like, I got the sense that he wanted to be a guy, like, guidebooks, you know, writing guidebooks or something. Absolutely. And that brings me to my next point. If you have not listened to this yet, Mike and I were both on our friend John Brooks's podcast, Hard to Believe. We talked about Bram Stoker, the man. Yeah, for Halloween. Yes, that was his Halloween episode. And we talked all about Bram Stoker and Dracula and all kinds of stuff like that. So if you want to listen to that, you can find all of that at the same place. Is cageclub.me or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is called Hard to Believe. Thank you, Rick, for your email. I loved reading that. Yeah. It's awesome. Love getting emails. The emails have become maybe my favorite part of this show. Ever since we started getting them, I enjoy getting them and, and reading them so much. This next email is from Sean Adams. He says, Hi, Dan and Mike. I love your podcast. It gives me such a deeper appreciation for these classic movies that I grew up loving. You both are crushing it, and I look forward to the new episodes every month. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Really enjoyed making this show. I do have a question for Monster Mike. So Mike previously expressed disbelief that Dracula was riding shotgun in one scene from Son of Dracula. Dracula. Yes. And although this is a completely reasonable response, as it is ridiculous, what is Mike's feeling on Dracula driving a boat in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? Notwithstanding mm. Bella playing Dracula with all seriousness, it was comical to see Dracula booking it to the castle in a boat with Wilbur and crew. I have loved this movie since I was a kid in the 90s and was so happy you guys reviewed it on the podcast. I can't wait for what you guys have planned in the future. Okay. I actually think I have an answer for this that'll track. So my first answer is like Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein is you know more comedic and so like yes it is a funny image and I accept it a little more because it's in a movie with a lot of laughs and things and you know everyone's kind of in on that joke I, so I don't really have a problem I don't even have a problem with Dracula driving a boat per se and I wouldn't have a problem exactly with Dracula driving a car it's the indignity of him sitting shotgun I think (laughs) really gets under my skin because why does he have to do that he should drive 
you know, like the invisible man drove in this movie. Right. Like that was cool. Like, cause he drove and it looked like a self-driving car and they worked that into a, into the movie as a bit. So I think to answer your question, it, it's not so much that he's like driving something is that he's passenger. And it, again, it just the imagery and that particular Dracula, which was Lon Chaney Jr., right? As son of Dracula. Uh, yes. Like he's such an imposing presence that it just made him look and feel so small as a character. So look, I have been thinking about this from time to time. <laughs> so I'm glad you called me out on it. Uh, and I hope some of that answers your question. Yeah, so that's from Jersey Boy Sean. Jersey represent? All right. Well, thank you for writing, Sean. Again, if you're listening to this show and you want to contact us, you can email us at themonstersthatmadeus at gmail.com. And with that, I think it's time for us to disappear, but we'll be back on Friday, January 27th to discuss Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, I know Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde have not been introduced up to this point, and some may not consider them Universal Studio Monsters. Mike and I were a little bit unsure as to include it. You'll notice we skipped over Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff. For me, there's no real monster in there, even though it is Karloff. So, I mean, it could definitely be a bonus episode at some point in the future. Would love to talk about that one. But with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, at least there's a monster monster in that movie. So it felt weird to to skip over that one. Yeah, and from what I understand, he shows up down the line in the dark universe of Universal like he's in that mummy movie you know so i always thought of him as like part of their world in one way or another and it actually wasn't until like recently i found out he wasn't a universal monster so we also want to do them meeting the killer at some point somehow he's kind of like the invisible man and then he's a scientist who develops this like formula that turns him into a monster he's like he's more like the incredible hulk than frankenstein was there was plenty of incredible hulk talk in that episode but prior to this jekyll and hyde had been adapted for the screen by I want to say RKO. It was other studios who had made Jekyll and Hyde Mm -hmm. movies, not Universal. Yeah. So now I guess by this time, Universal had gotten hold of the character and then decided they were going to throw him in in an Abbott and Costello movie. So with that in mind, that's sort of why we're including that particular movie. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at the monsters that made us you can follow me on twitter at dan cologne mike where can listeners find you you can follow me on twitter at the underscore mikester and you can find all the other shows i'm on at cageclub.me and i just got to say one more time thank you so much for writing in those emails are the greatest thank you so much absolutely and i should say that if you're listening to this as it releases my twitter account is currently private if you want to follow me on twitter just send me a friend request shoot me a dm let me know you're a fan of the show take care of that on my end but yeah eventually it will be public again no worries if you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a patreon supporter you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes and we can't forget about our t-shirts on t public you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me we hope you all had a very happy holiday season and we hope you have a great new year stay spooky everybody Thank you.